You are listening to the Evolution Exchange NHS podcast. We shine a light on the topics that matter to digital and data leaders within the NHS. I'm Carrigan Thompson, and I help connect digital leaders with interim talent in the NHS, and I'm your host. The views expressed by guests are their own and do not necessarily reflect the official position or policy of their organisation. Thank you for coming on to the um, podcast today, which will obviously all be about digital transformation in the NHS. So to get started, we'll just go through and do a little introduction. Um, Wendy, you are first up on my screen. If you want to go first and just give a little introduction for us. Thank you. I'm Wendy Copeland-Blair. I'm the Clinical Outcomes Programme Lead at Mersey Care, uh, NHS Foundation Trust. Uh, we're one of the largest trusts in the Northwest that provide physical health and mental health services. We serve more than 11 million people. Um, we provide specialist inpatient community services. Um, and my role is all about embedding the use of clinician and patient reported outcome measures across our services. Thank you so much. And then um, we'll go over to you, Andy, next. Okay, um, so Andrew Brown, I'm Deputy Director of Informatics at the Mid Mersey Digital Alliance, um, which is hosted by St. Helens and Knowsley um, uh, Trust. Uh, we also provide services not just to the Trust, but to um, you know, various CCGs, um, GP practices, um, community services, etc. Um, so my role is primarily around um, you know, business development, business uh, well, new project implementation. Um, so you know, particularly interested in talking on this about um, clinical transformation and clinical safety specifically. Perfect. Thank you so much. And last but not least, over to you, Rob. Hi there. I'm uh, Rob Howth. I'm the informatics director at Cancer for Chester. So for those of you who don't know, Cancer of Chester is a medium-sized DGH in Chester, oddly enough, mm-hmm. uh, serving the population of Cheshire West and uh, a, re- a reasonable chunk of North East Wales, I guess. Um, fairly standard DGH, um, no, no specialist services particularly. Of note, we went live with a new EPR last summer, which was a challenging program of work and we're still working through the stabilization of that EPR before we start to move on to the the next phase which would be further optimization of that. Perfect thank you so much um, so again yeah thank you for all coming on we'll go straight into our questions um, and I'll be coming to you first it's one of the first questions I've got up on my list so that was more about um, like you've just briefly said, the clinical safety and the process that we have to follow within the digital systems to ensure that solutions are clinically safe. If you want to go into a little bit more detail around that one for us. Yes, OK. So um, the the clinical safety um, processes for, for new um, digital solutions um, has been significantly um, you know, beefed up in the last few um, years. Um, it's not to say that um, previous implementations were not clinically safe, um, but the you know the documentation and the the governance um, behind it from both a supplier perspective and also the um, the you know, the trust or the receiving organisations perspective is is much more 
um, you know, detailed than, than previously. And um, what I've found in my experience is that um, there is um, different levels of understanding in organisations about what is required. And again, that's both from a supplier perspective and also um, you know, from an implementation organisation's perspective. So the, the, and I know the reason I know this is because in pre, previous life I was in the Cheshire Merseyside Central team and um, I pulled together a, uh, you know, a presentation from a potential safety expert, um, you know, puts a sort of general shout out to people to say who would be interested. And um, to my astonishment, really, it was massively oversubscribed to the extent that we had to put on about three or four sessions, I think, so to, you know, to get the awareness up there. Um, so I imagine people listening to this will fall into sort of two categories. One, those who are saying, well, well this is really obvious and you, you know, we've known this for a long time. And another from the direct extreme is, oh, don't know anything about this. Um, so a little bit more detail from um, suppliers side, they need to provide uh, for any new um, you know, solution going in or for an upgrade to a solution, um, something which adheres to DCB 0129 standards. Now, I make no apology for throwing in a little bit of jargon there, because that's important and, and suppliers really need to, um, you know, to understand that. And some of them, in my experience, again, don't. It's all new to them. So I have to educate them as to what is required. and. You know, it, it's a little bit onerous in some ways, although really necessary, um, that they need to um, you know, produce um, a, a hazard log, um, risk management plan, um, and various other documentations, uh, documentation in order to be able to demonstrate to you know, the receiving organisation that what they're putting in has been evaluated from their perspective as being clinically safe. Um, but then from the you know, receiving organisation, the, the trust or whichever organisation is receiving it, they need to adhere to another, another standard, obviously linked, but this is DCB 0160, um, which um, takes the supplier's information but produces it from um, you know, the trust perspective as well. And so that again, the, the risk management plan, um, the hazard log, etc, etc. So I just wanted to bring it up here to discuss because it's quite a, a, an undertaking, a commitment to do so. Um, yes, it's part of the, um, should be part of a project plan in order to be able to get this produced. But then it's, it's it's a BAU activity as well, um, and you know, I'll be honest, it, it's taking up quite a lot of time, extra resource um, from you know, clinical safety officer. We've got a, a deputy clinical safety officer in place now. We've also got a little clinical safety team um, which is has been established and um, is being um, set up to Yes, get the new projects with the right documentation, but also looking back 
for some of the key implementations that have happened over a period of time and making sure that clinical safety documentation is is up to up to speed as well so just just interested to understand from you rob and you wendy is you know are you facing the same sort of challenges with with this at the moment well i i, I can step in andy i mean i, I suppose from my perspective it's, it's interesting and timely as we've recently implemented a new epr um our supplier governance around our go no go decision was was very tough and very strong um i, I guess one of my observations with with anything that's standard related or gateway related or whatever you, you can probably find yourself doing the bare minimum because what's the benefit of doing of doing you know completing the clinical safety case and i suppose you know some people listening will think well it's blindingly obvious why you should do it and why you should make a good job of it but there'll be other people going well well i've been asked to do this and i can't be bothered i'm just going to skedaddle through it and uh, do the bare minimum I think from my perspective, it's 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 really challenging because you, you don't know how well you've done it until you start seeing clinical risks materialising. So that there's a and I guess that, that potentially that's dependent upon the scale of the implementation or the programme that you're undertaking. Um, and so I, I, I guess if you're doing a a single departmental implementation, the 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 scale of your uh, DCB0160 or the the supplier one, the DCB0129, is 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 going to be significantly different to if you're doing one for an entire organisation that's changing its um, clinical record system, so putting a new EPR in, um, and I, I think. The, the, the other sort of side of it, and, and it's one which is kind of particularly pertinent for the Countess of Chester, is it's all well and good doing a, you know, completing your clinical safety risk log, your your clinical, clinically induced hazard or your system induced hazard log for your internal organisation. But you, you have to focus, you have to remember to focus on your external partners as well. So notably, you know, from the Countess perspective, our primary care colleagues where We've had a, a significant number of challenges since go live with um, results going back to primary care and not going back in the right format and so on and so forth, which which has been a real challenge for us. And it's it's probably something we overlooked when we went live was that we, we knew we, we felt like we had a fairly good handle on what our clinical risks were, what the system induced hazards were. But I don't think we'd paid an awful lot of attention to external hazards or risks that were caused by the input or the change of our system. So, uh, you know, it's, it's it's interesting and it's, it's like you say, a lot of people will roll their eyes when you say, oh, you know, you've got to do the, you complete this standards or, you know, and they're the, the kind of, the, the benefit of doing it is really strong. And in some instances, I guess that that benefit is only, is, is only apparent after the event. So when your unknown unknowns come and bite you in the, posterior um it's only then when you think well, perhaps i should have spent a bit more time um in the governance phase and it, I, you know my experience i guess is that people typically kind of overlook some of this sort of statutory standards reporting and things like that um i guess you, you do it at your peril 
Yeah, I totally agree. I mean, but I think that's the whole point of why um, they've been introduced to try and prevent some of those mm. um, things happening at a, at a later time to predict as much as possible. Sure. I, I've just, um, so I'm somebody who doesn't actually have any familiarity with clinical safety stands. So when I think of clinical safety, I'm thinking, I think of things like from the user perspective in terms mm. of, so let's say we were talking about a digital collection system for patient reported outcome measures. What would we do if the data we're collecting shows that there's a clinical risk? How would that be managed by the system? How would we flag that to an individual clinician, to a clinical team? So I suppose uh, when I sort of heard you talk about clinical safety, that kind of was the first thing that came into my head. But I think from a from somebody who might be knocking on the door of people like yourselves and saying, find me a solution, what would you say the key things are for for somebody like me who's a you and then not necessarily the end user but the pro leading a program of work that might call on digital solutions that I need to be aware of um, in my role around maybe some of the some of the ask in relation to clinical safety that I might not necessarily be aware of. That's a really hard question, Wendy. Um, I, I think I'd, I'd turn it around and say um, that almost like clinical safety is a is a is a given. It should be a given. You know, you mm. shouldn't put anything in place that is not clinically safe. So, um, in terms of the the change that you you want to make, then um, you know you'd look for. Um, you know, a, a range of solutions come down on the um, preferred one, uh, but then, you know, on the implementation, all of the appropriate clinical safety um, exercise needs to be undertaken. And that's not just done, um, you know, by informatics in an ivory tower, that is done collaboratively, collaboratively with the likes of yourself, um, mm. whereby you know, you look for any possible hazards um, collaboratively. Um, and I've done it before where um, there was a, in a boardroom with all sorts of different people and we all had little, um, you know, score sheets. So, you know, between one and five and, you know, everyone held up what they what they thought the, you know, the the risk was should be scored at. Um, so it was a really nice collaboratively collaborative way of doing it. Um, but as I say, that's the way it should be looked at in my view, that clinical safety is a given. It should be a given and that, that's the way I would address it. Yeah. I, I think for from my perspective, having kind of lived through a lot of the pain of of the consequences of this, that actually that I, I kind of figure that you're probably not going to cover it all off, but the the, the kind of benefit of it, or the, the, the how you will flush a, a kind of a significant chunk of it out, is by having good clinical leadership and engagement in your processes, and and in particular your transformation process. And so, in in terms of some of the some of the pieces that we've thought about um, as as part of our process, we've thought about our our, our prescribing, for instance, and so we, we've always had nurse prescribing in the trust and every 
every acute trust up and down the country will have nurse prescribing at two levels. So they'll have it at one level where nurses will be prescribing off the, the prescribed PGD, um, which is the prescribing general directive, which allows nurses to prescribe aspirin, ibuprofen, you know, Gaviscon or whatever the non-branded name of Gaviscon is to patients when they come in A&E. And it just allows that kind of general bog standard prescribing. The, the other side of nurse led prescribing is the advanced nurse practitioners, which are nurses who can prescribe pretty much anything a consultant can prescribe. So pre pre Asana go live, our PGD nurses were prescribing on paper by and large. When we went live with Cerna, we, we had the same policy in place, which said, unless you're an advanced nurse practitioner, all you can prescribe is, you know, the half a dozen medicines, whatever it is. Um, but when we went live with Cerna, they, they, everybody's doing everything by the system. And we had probably two or three instances in the early days of Go Live where non-advanced nurse practitioners were prescribing, or had started down the route of prescribing non-PGD drugs. And the, the reaction was, was kind of interesting because we said, well, it's prescribed by policy and by training, um, but the organisation took a very strong decision saying, well, it doesn't matter that you, if you've got policy there, it doesn't stop people from behaving in a way that we don't expect them to behave. There's a system induced hazard and the control of it by a policy isn't enough. So we, we need to put a change into the system. So after much kind of gnashing of teeth and going around the houses and all the rest of it, um, we, we've, we've eventually managed to put that change in the system. But pre go live, everybody's like, yeah, yeah, it's absolutely fine. You, 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 we accept that nurses can prescribe. We know PG, you know, a, a nurse in A&E will know that, that they, they can only prescribe paracetamol or whatever it happens to be. But all of a sudden you, you're opening up a system where you've got a Pandora's box of everything from paracetamol to, you know, morphine or whatever it is, and they're not allowed to, you know, and so it's, 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 it's by having that kind of well thought through kind of current state map, because I, 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 I argued the opposite. I said, well, even in the current state, they could order on paper something that they didn't, weren't supposed to order, and somebody could miss it and they could still end up and, and it's kind of an interesting debate i i think um but really it's around kind of like i say that really strong clinical engagement and i don't just mean consultant engagement it needs to be you know clinicians across the of all spectrums kind of understanding what it's going to mean and starting to explore well what would happen if we didn't close it down for those for that staff group what's what's the consequence of that and some of that you, you you possibly don't even get to think about before you even start using the system, I think. I think, I mean, you just described there a massive opportunity for me to actually how we improve potential clinical safety through the right through the right design of systems. And yeah. um, I think I've always seen that as one of the benefits of digital mm. um, in that it can actually aid how mm -hmm. our clinicians do business yeah. um, if designed appropriately with the right clinical engagement, understanding the existing risks in the current mm. state and using that to inform that kind of that user that user need 
we can act and, sure. and seeing how those clinical systems and processes can actually be adapted digitally. Mm. Um, there's a real opportunity, but then there's also a real risk if we design it wrong. Um, because then it's the system that let me do it and it mm. starts to remove some of the onus on clinicians to behave mm. in a way that is consistent with policy as well so yeah there is a sounds like there's a real balancing act yeah. um but yeah definitely really good example of actually that though i think there's a there's a, there's a balance between i don't know whether it's a balance but one of the one of the things that our consultant body got really anxious about pre-go life was that we weren't importing any previous um, lab results over to the new EPR. And so we weren't reporting, so it was all staying in the old EPR, which was there for read only. And they were saying that, well, when somebody's in hospital, we, we take continuous measurements, to, which will lead us to being able to identify whether somebody's got acute kidney injury. Um, and I can't remember the, the exact tests. And I'm saying that we we won't we won't we won't be able to track it because we'll we'll have to look we'll be taking measurements in a new system which will be effectively empty, and we won't be able to see what's happened in the previous system. And we knew that we were introducing a, a system-based hazard, but it was felt sufficient that if you want to see the measurements of previous tests, you're going to have to log into the old EPR, read them, and then do the calculation, which was a simple calculation to calculate the difference between previous score and the current score to work out whether that change was significant or otherwise. And we knew that over time, over a period of months, that actually the legacy data becomes obsolete because actually the change is kind of, what was it yesterday? What was it last week? What it was six months ago isn't particularly pertinent. It gives you an idea of the range, but it actually doesn't contribute to the, to the overarching score of that patient and whether or not they're in danger of a you know acquiring acute kidney injury so we put that was something we knew about and we put safeguards in place and whilst a lot of people were kind of you know weeping and wailing and gnashing of teeth pre-go live two or three months post-go live nobody's mentioned it at all and people are just sort of cracking on with it it's it's, it's, it's interesting what i suppose for me it's interesting what you pick out pre the change and when you're doing the you know the 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 clinical safety standards sort of workbooks and what actually materializes post that and i, I think that there's a probably a, a real judgment call andrew and I, you, you probably agree as to how much detail you can go into pre-go live when you're completing these because you could probably spend months and months and months if not years doing these until you've got to a point where you think yeah i've got 99 percent complete and i'm content with it or you know the, the, i kind of guess the trade-off is how quickly you want to go live with whatever it is or what change you want to put in place yeah you, you're spot on it's about the scale of things as well i mean as you rightly said the the amount of clinical safety you know documentation for a new epr implementation and all the different things around that is going to be um you know an order of magnitude, several orders of magnitude, more than if I'm just implementing, um, you know, one small piece of um, new kit. Um, so yeah, it's all about scale and proportionality, making sure you, you know, you've got the right amount for whatever you put in it. 
Perfect. Does anyone want to add any final points towards Andy's question there? No, I think so. I think that's a good debate. So thank you. It was. It was really good. <laughs> um, I think that can move us quite nicely on to, um, to, to your one, actually, Rob, where you wanted to speak more, obviously, about the clinical transformation and why that is important. If you want to go into a little bit more detail on that one. Yeah, absolutely. Um, so, I mean, I, I think I touched on several of the points there, but it's really, for me, about, you know, why is clinical transformation important to the successful implementation of a clinical system? And it's, it's you know, to implement a, a clinical system of any flavour or size, you really need strong clinical leadership. Um, and really, that's to kind of start to drag it away from being an IMT implementation where people don't have any ownership of it because you know it's just a bunch of cables and wires and chipsets and all the rest of it so actually what you're looking to deliver here with with this technology is clinical transformation and clinical benefit realization and as a as a informatician without with limited clinical kind of knowledge and no clinical background i i kind of have some idea of what the benefits might be for for some of this but i can't own them because i'm not going to deliver them and so it's really important that you have good clinical leadership and really positive clinical engagement in, in, in any implementation that you're undertaking and delivering. And particularly, it's really kind of looking at what your current state processes are, whether be they paper or digital or whatever, and then understanding what the future state of that is. Um, and for me, a, a big part, and it, it, it does represent a burden, but as we've spoken about, it's around understanding what the risks are, what the clinical hazards might be of you implementing this system, how you can mitigate those. But And the other kind of big bit really is what are the benefits and what's in it for me? What's in it for me as a, as a user of a system, whether I'm a HCA on a ward or a you know, consultant physician or a surgeon or an anaesthetist? And it's only those people that can understand that. So when I talk about clinical transformation, I, I talk about it across the spectrum, from across all disciplines and all grades, not just kind of having a few kind of grumpy consultants stuck in a room, you know, talking about it. And so it really needs strong clinical leadership to wrest it away from the the, the kind of it from being a standard IMT program. Um, and you know, there's there's a number of mechanisms you can do that, but you know, you can look to have clinical champions and expert users and so on and so forth, but you know for any transformation or for any implementation where you want clinical transformation it needs to be clinically led and i've had some interesting conversations with another trust in the in the northwest recently who are implementing the same um epr that we've implemented and they're going from paper to an epr um and we went from a, a, a an old but fairly fairly rich functional epr to a new modern epr um and kind of my reflections on that, they said, oh, it must have been difficult for you going from an existing digital system to a new digital system. And I'm kind of thinking it will be just as difficult for them going from paper to a new digital system. It, I can't even begin to imagine the challenges other than perhaps you could burn all the previous case notes and not have to worry about any data migration. So, um, yeah, I think that for any clinical system implementation, if you want it to be a transformation program and so if you want to get the the benefit from that asset you really need strong clinical leadership for that transformation piece 
Yeah, I totally support that. Um, in terms of um, you know implementing new solutions, the technology in many ways is well the easy bit. You know, it's it's less than half of the um, the effort in my experience, and you know that's I think a reasonably standard um, yeah. you know, percentage. Um, the the main effort, as Rob rightly says, is in the in the change um, and the clinical change and clinical leadership, clinical sponsorship, is mm. is really important. Um, again, I've just seen. In the, in the NHS and other industries that I've worked in, that when informatics, when IT kind of like impose something or lead on something, then it is much harder to get it uh, accepted and, and utilised than if it is being pulled in um, and led by the, the service which is um, which, which wants it to happen. Um, it's yeah, it's it's a well-known fact, really. So, absolutely support what you're saying, Rob. Yeah. I just, yeah, again, I absolutely echo that too. Um, I mean, my experience is very much about how you can understand the needs of the people you're working with and how digital can support those needs. And sometimes, even actually, a lot of people, when you when you talk to them about, so for example, with my piece of work, so we talk about maybe implementing new ways of working new things we need to do the first pe thing people will say is oh well we'll need some admin for example to capture that data and report it on the system but actually no take it back a step what is it that you actually need to happen not how you need it to happen but what is it you actually need to achieve clinically or from a process perspective and then how can we think about what role our systems or our digital tools can play in changing the way we think about how we do stuff in the NHS because it's interesting mm. you're talking about people going from paper um, into a clinical record, um, an electronic clinical record. There are still elements of that within Mm. Obviously, the work I do where people have been completing patient questionnaires on paper for a long time. And when you start to talk about some of the issues, actually, that's a real barrier to the engagement and the completion of those questions and then the ultimate use of that data. Um, mm. So there is absolutely for me understanding the clinical need first and foremost and understanding the patient's need first and foremost as well when we're thinking about how we reach out and engage with patients digitally is fundamental and that only comes through that engagement with your users mm. and that lead that strong engagement because yeah we can all sit around and go oh this would work. Mm. But unless we know what they what people need, then we could design something that's beautiful and really functional, yeah. but no one ever uses. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think from from a sort of you know f first steps kind of position that actually when you're doing your business case, and I've had hundreds of conversations with people about business cases, particularly for EPR over implementations over the years. And they've all said whatever number you put in your business case for cost of implementation, you need to increase it by X, X percent because you'll always come back for more money. Um, and one, one of the things that often gets crossed out is kind of expensive resource. 
such as consultant time and trying to find consultants who are interested in becoming kind of informaticians and giving up a bit of their day job is a real challenge I think for for us as an organization because that that's actually what you need you need some really kind of committed people who are prepared to stop seeing you know prepared to cut back on their proper clinical activity and start doing that clinical information clinical transformation piece because it's not something that we in, in kind of I'm and T can do particularly well I don't think but it's a significant cost to an organization to say actually we're going to take a consultant an A&E consultant out of the business for half a week for the next two and a half years to work on the EPR program we're going to take out a matron we're going to take out a few nurses it's it's a big cost but actually I think that if you if you don't pay for it up front you pay for it twice further downstream absolutely and and that's that's all about um the sort of culture change within within organizations within the mm. nhs i mean one of my sort of common mantras is that you know digital is as much part of the clinical pathway as you know cutting cutting people open and yeah. you know giving them drugs etc it is so embedded now that we need to, as you rightly say, Rob, sort of change the mindset so that you know the right people, whether they're consultants or nurses or AHPs or whatever, um, they you know are valued enough to be able to um, you know, come in and help with that digital transformation. So we, yeah, I completely agree. Mm. I think it is a massive challenge um, having the resource to do that. Um, it's so many times we're asking clinicians to do this on top of their day job. Yeah. Um, and then we wonder why we don't get the feedback that we need. Mm. Um, it is, yeah, it's, it's definitely a, if I could have a wish list, mm. it would be on my wish list that I, that for every clinical project, that we're that that I'm working on that we could have ring fence time of mm. the of the involved clinicians to actually make sure that they can be properly engaged and not feel like it's just something else we're asking them to do when they're already yeah. really stretched and busy. Yeah, absolutely. I think I think it's a real challenge for organisations, and I don't just mean at a, at a a provider level. It's almost a, a real challenge to you know the Royal Colleges and the BMA to say, look, you know. Like you say, Andy, you know, digital is as much part of patient care as, you know, delivering surgery, providing drugs, providing drugs and all the rest of it. And so, you know, there's a there's a probably a challenge to those sorts of organisations to say, what are you going to do in terms of training your, you know, your university students and when they finish their, their medical degrees or whatever to say, well, actually, one of the specialisms you can go into rather than care of the elderly is you know digital transformation because it's as important to you know to have those kind of skilled clinical people in that space as it is to have you know technical people and things it's uh... yeah perfect is that everything that you that you kind of wanted to get from from your point rob uh yeah i think so yeah perfect so um well then that i mean it all lovely leads on to um Wendy's final point, which is to do with how digital can support organisations in better understanding their effectiveness, and in particular, 
and the outcomes that people are achieving if you want to go into that a little bit more for us Wendy. Thank you so I suppose um, probably just to start things off because I'm not sure how how many of the audience will know what I'm talking about when I talk about clinician and patient reported outcome measures. So a lot of us, when we think about outcomes, we might think about, you know, can somebody walk better than before they had their hip operation or um, in a case of a mental health organisation, have we seen a reduction in the um, maybe somebody's experience of hallucinations or their use of inpatient services? And they're all really valuable outcome measures and ways that we can understand effectiveness. But one of the things we're really interested in doing is actually finding kind of more systematic ways of using feedback uh, from standard scales uh, of objective measures from clinicians about looking at what they see and observe and how they can use that data to essentially give us a sense of the severity and the complexity of somebody's presentation, taking into account a number of factors, but also the subjective experience of the patient in terms of the condition they may have and the impact that has on them in terms of how it stops or how it impacts on them doing the things that are important to them. Um, So ways we can do that is through things called patient reported outcome measures and clinician reported outcome measures and um, a lot of the work we're doing within our organisation is is quite focused on the patient reported measures because that seems to be where a lot of the digital barriers exist. But I think when I think about kind of digital and how it can help with organisations embedding these types of measures and therefore understanding our effectiveness better, there's three elements. One is making sure that our clinical systems are initially configured to collect the data that we need. Um, in a way that enables us to export and report that data, whether that be to national data sets uh, or actually into our own data warehouses for business intelligence and reporting purposes. But then there's also the digital collection. So I mentioned before the burden um, on clinicians um, and admin staff around if we want to collect this feedback from people about what's happening for them, we need to get that information from the person. We need to then transcribe it into the clinical system. And then there needs to be some way of turning that data around quickly so that the feedback's available in an analysed way for the clinician to make sense of and potentially to also be shared back to the person as well, subject to all safeguarding issues being addressed. So there's the kind of that real time ability to collect and ensure that data is actually within the clinical record. So it's available as part of the patient's care record, but also the um, how that data can then be transformed into usable information. So if I talk about our children and adolescent mental health services, we've just done a project in St. Helens, we're just coming to the end of it, where we've been using a user-centered design approach to think about some of these problems. And one of the key issues was that we, we asked children, and young people, you'd be surprised, 47 questions before they can come into CAMS, which can tell us about the extent to which they are experiencing different problems. And that can really help our clinicians to understand what's going on for that person right now. And they use that feedback as part of all of the other things that they're talking to the person about and to help give a sense of what the biggest issues are that we might need to work with the person on. 
if you can imagine a child, a young person turning up in reception 15 minutes before their appointment, filling in a 47 item questionnaire, there is no opportunity for that data to be then meaningfully turned into something the clinician can quickly look at and go, ah, this individual seems to be having a lot of issues around panic or obsessive compulsive behaviours. So what they end up doing is scanning over the data, picking out maybe two or three of the biggest issues that are coming through, but they can't really make really, really good use of that feedback. So for us, what we, we started to test out was how we might present that data back in real time, visually, how we might use digital to collect the data. So platforms, portals to collect the data and then how that data would come back into our clinical system and then be presented back in a user friendly format. Um, and I think the other element then is when we start to, so that's kind of the patient level, but then there's there's a lot of other emerging opportunities for starting to think about how we can use other data, such as sleep active, sleep data, activity data. A lot of us are wearing Fitbits these days, um, mood diaries to contextualize. So a lot of people will say, oh, you can't just look at that data. What if grandma had died last week? Or what if I had a puppy? And it's really buoyed me up, you know, that context that actually provides narrative to the data we have. I just think there's a massive wealth of opportunity that digital can bring. And even the less sort of sexy stuff, which is like the, the, the back, the rear of the integration um, of systems and the, the ability to start to bring maybe more population-based data in and think about the impacts that has on anticipated outcomes. I could talk forever on this, but I really just think we've got a huge opportunity with digital we what we need to safeguard though is that we don't as i mentioned before that we design with the end user in mind that we don't just because i'm excited by this and i think oh this would be marvelous that we really are listening to what those user needs are um yeah i could wax lyrical so <laughs> i'll shut up for a second and just uh, open up to co colleagues if they've got any comments should i, should I, just, I, just, I, I think i think what you're saying is, is really really interesting and what what you're kind of describing is is taking us away from the an, an almost traditional model of a consultation so a, a, a patient or a citizen or whatever we're wanting to call them going to sit in a room with with, with an expert and telling the expert something and then the expert interpreting that and documenting it and that 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 self description whether it's via a piece of paper and a questionnaire or on, a, on an ipad which flows directly through into an engine or whether it's through a, a smartphone or a fitbit or a um or, or one of those kinds of things is, is really really interesting and I, from an acute perspective we obviously don't have an awful lot of dealings with kind of mental health and uh, mental health care but actually what we're starting to see more more increasingly across the place is that kind of more joined up approach so we start to get a, a more complete picture of the people that we're looking to care for which then does start to bring in kind of primary care and community care and social care and, and mental health care and certainly from from a, a, a trust perspective, actually, some of the biggest challenges we have in our A&E department beyond the kind of sheer volume of patients that roll in um, is, is patients with mental health conditions um, that we're not equipped to cope with or treat. 
and to look after um, and they quite often get um, a, a, from from my perspective anyway they quite often get poor care um, and, and in part it's probably because we don't know exactly what's going on and so actually having kind of real-time information or really kind of up-to-date information available to all carers across a system or a place is, is really valuable and how you get that information in is 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 really important as well but like you say Wendy is how you, you process that and start to share it with the people involved in that person's care is is, is really exciting there's an awful lot of technology out there which um, you, you know we, we kind of use in our private lives um, which we could easily start to reposition and repurpose if we were smart enough and kind of agile in a not in a traditional project management sort of sense but um, we, we could start to use um, and it's, it's 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 really interesting I think um, I mean I come from a BI background so I'm, I'm kind of really kind of into kind of I was into sort of presentation of him or translating data into information so it becomes meaningful and and that, that's really challenging as well but I think that there's so much more we can do now with the technology and the data and I think it, you know it di starts to directly tap into people's modern experiences rather than kind of sitting in a waiting room waiting to see the consultant who's you know half an hour late and you know big complaints it's like oh well you know the nurse asked me for me name and address and me date of birth the consultants asked me the pharmacist everybody's asking me the same questions and nobody's actually asking me how I feel um, and so it starts to take it away from that kind of sort of patriarchal transactional sort of model of care into a much more fluid and dynamic model of care where you, you as the, the the person receiving the care are, are much more participative in that um, and I, I, I figure irrespective of your your capacity or your capability um, you still have the wherewithal to be able to describe that I mean I know that you know from a, having had children that from a very young age the children would be able to describe how they felt now they might not be able to use really long words or say well, actually I think I've got stomach bug dad is you know it's got a tummy ache and I don't know what to do about it it's kind of but people know how to describe it and so I, I, I guess it's about building the interfaces and making sure that that data transfers and flows through to the right places in the the systems to, for people to be able to use appropriately Absolutely. Um, I think there is increasingly, even within kind of the, I say even within the acute sector, um, I know of an uh, organisation called ITROM, the International Consortium for Health Outcome Measures. Um, they've been developing uh, a number of sets of patient-centred outcome measures for, across a wide variety of conditions, not just the mental health world. In fact, actually, we were quite late into the ITROM game. Um, it's very much, you know, comes from that whole values-based healthcare model. So doing things that are valuable for patients and absolutely the the role of outcomes data as a tool to support shared decision making um, and removing that patriarchal doctor knows best um, because actually we're all experts in our own condition and in our own lives and how it impacts on us and it's yeah definitely yeah and um, just to sort of almost extend it a little bit and um, it, it's almost like a philosophical um, debate about um, who owns um, you know the data um, at the moment it's very much um, owned by 
you know, the trust, by the mental health, or by whatever um, healthcare organisation. Whereas it's a patient's data, really, isn't it? And so I know we're looking at, um, you know, patient-held records, um, whereby they're in they're in charge of their own information, um, wherever that's from. And you know, that can be you know quite basic stuff. So you know, having appointments on it etc but to you know to really make that make that sing make it really useful to have the ability to put in you know how you're feeling etc um that is absolutely the way that, that we should be going um so yeah it's it's, it's changing that mindset from you know, you know trust owns your data to mm. actually patient yeah. i own it yeah, yeah. Absolutely. Yeah, they definitely. <laughs> is that is that where you wanted that one to go for yourself, Wendy? Is there anything else that you, that you wanted to get from your point at all? No, I think no, I think I've probably covered. Yeah, and I think the the points you guys have raised have absolutely followed it. They're probably the only other actually. No, I always have just one more. Do you know Colombo? <laughs> Just one more thing. Uh, I just need my cigar and my my my, my, my Mac. Um, but I think the only other thing is the opportunity for how outcome measures and outcomes data can actually facilitate things like um, patient-led follow-up. Mm. Um, so in a in a in an acute sort of, I know that there's been a lot of talk about how we could move away from an automatic follow-up model where you know you always get an appointment after you've maybe had a piece of minor surgery, and how you might actually be able to utilise outcomes data and outcome measures, patient-reported outcome measures, to check in. And only really then, based on the clinical data that comes back from that 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 feedback, then mm. that could potentially act as a decision, clinical decision support, as to whether actually we probably do need to initiate a follow up, even if the individual patient hasn't given us a call and said um, things aren't going so great. So yeah. I think there is a there's there's option opportunities as well to think about how we could move further towards that ambition. Mm through some of these more remote <laughs> monitoring approaches whether it be through remote symptom monitoring or through use of subjective measures around impact and quality yeah. of life sure absolutely perfect stuff thank you very much Wendy. is there um so obviously we've got through all the questions i mean normally it takes the hour of four participants so that just shows how well it's all gone um so that's really really good i just wanted to double check just before we, we come to a close if there's any final thoughts anything anyone to, to add just before before we draw to the close at all well, just to say i found it really interesting and uh yeah thank you all for your contribution it's been really good to talking with you snap <laughs> <laughs> absolutely so it's been a really enjoyable hour or so so thank you very much it's good to see you again andrew yes and you rob yeah. and good to meet you all yeah, yeah, absolutely. sorry wendy <laughs> oh well you know i'm not offended honest <laughs> oh no i want to just say thank you all for taking the time out to, to be a part of it and, and i do hope you did find it all really really useful